Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 143, Strange Trajectories. Leo Phocas was one of Byzantium's great tacticians. Twice he trapped the armies of Seyf Dola in the mountains, once he attacked a Magyar camp at night to drive them from Thrace. When he heard the news that John had again pardoned him for treason, he did not react with gratitude. He would make Zemiskis pay for his leniency and for the murder of his brother. Soon afterwards, his opportunity arrived. John and the army were in Bulgaria and could be gone for months. It was time for Focus to make his move. On this occasion, he bribed the right people stole a boat, and along with his son, made his way north to Constantinople. They landed on the Asian shore of the Bosphorus and made contact with friends in the capital. The plan was to break into the palace at night and seize power. First thing they needed were the keys. Leo's friends offered a bag of money to one of the gatekeepers who made a wax impression of the key. They took this to be forged and were soon in possession of a working key to the palace gates. Leo sailed over to the city at night and was welcomed into the home of one of his retainers. But, as so often happens during coups, someone got cold feet. A member of the household sent word that Leo was in the city. The news reached the commander of the fleet who John had left in charge of the capital. He raced to the house where Phocas was staying and surrounded it. Leo and his son tried to escape and reach the Ahia Sophia, but they failed. They were put in chains and taken to a nearby island. When news of these events reached the Danube, the emperor reluctantly gave the order for the Phocads to have their eyes put out. So ends the career of Leo Phocas, the great tactician. Though this is a minor incident in retrospect, at the time it must have caused serious alarm. John was besieging Dristra, a mission that could easily have gone awry. 
Antioch was under siege, and now Nicephorus's brother had been moments away from seizing the palace and shutting the gates on Zimisces. If things had gone slightly differently, we would now be talking about the stupidity of John and the disasters the Romans suffered because of his decision to murder Nicephorus. Once again, though, the Vasilevs was lucky. Everything turned out all right for him. Alongside this news, messengers also appeared to tell him that the siege of Antioch had been broken off and the Fatimid troops were retreating south. Leaving John on the Danube for a moment, let's quickly cover that attack. Eagle-eared listeners might be thinking, the Fatimids, aren't they the rulers of Africa, as in Tunisia, the ones occupying Sicily? How exactly did they get to Cairo, let alone all the way to Antioch? All good questions, which I won't be answering fully today. Developments within the Arab world will be covered in the end of the century episodes. For now, let's just deal with the information we need. Having captured Egypt, the Fatimids were determined to create a new caliphate of their own. But they were a Shia sect of Islam, as opposed to the Sunni Abbasids. This created immediate problems as the Fatimids looked north towards the Levant. Most people there were Sunni Muslims and would resent the rise of a Shia power in their midst. In order to encourage support for the new caliphate, the Fatimids wanted to unite the Muslim people around their common enemy, the Romans. So despite only having captured Egypt a year earlier, the summer of 970 saw Fatimid forces sweeping north. Several cities were captured, and agents were sent to reconnoitre the situation around Aleppo and Antioch, with an eye to launching an attack on the Roman position. Fatimid High Command reasoned that if they could retake Antioch, it would demonstrate that only they could resist the infidels. They hoped to stir up the wider Islamic world in support of their cause and consolidate their hold on Syria. John had already set off for Bulgaria at Easter 971, when news reached him that Antioch was under attack. Like Nicephorus before him, John turned to a loyal eunuch to take charge of the situation, a man named Nicholas, who was an active general. He took a small force to Alexandretta, which is on the coast, a few miles from Antioch. He didn't have enough men to break the siege, but he attempted to interrupt their supply lines and managed to make a nuisance of himself. The besieging army broke off a detachment to deal with him. Seeing them coming, Nicholas abandoned his camp and hid his men in the nearby foothills. The Berber troops, finding the Romans gone, began to loot their baggage. Distracted, they did not see Nicholas's troops charging down on them until it was too late. This small victory did not in itself break the siege, but the walls of Antioch were solid and stood firm for five months, and with revolts breaking out across Syria, the order 
was given to pull back. The Fatimids focused on keeping what they'd already taken, and the Romans had been warned that their march into caliphal lands would no longer be uncontested. Finally then, we return to the emperor as he stands on the banks of the Danube, watching the Rus disappear over the horizon. He had won a very special victory. He dejected the Rus, and both Antioch and the palace had survived intact. There was only one question left to answer, what to do with Bulgaria. John's forces occupied their capital, key fortresses on the road north, and now the trading centres on the Danube. It was only recently that the Romans had come to accept the Bulgarians as a Christian nation who deserved grudging respect. Before that, they had considered them unworthy barbarians who were squatting on Byzantine land. Which attitude was going to prevail? It was to be the latter. It's hard to say at what point John decided to annex the kingdom. Was this the plan all along? Was Nicephorus already thinking of this before he died? Or was this a reaction to the circumstances John found himself in? After all, eastern Bulgaria was in rough shape. Their capital had been sacked, their fortresses needed repairs, and perhaps most importantly, many of their leading families had been decimated. First by two rounds of war with the Rus, then by battles with the Byzantines, and finally by the executions which Sviatoslav had ordered when the siege of Dristra was upon him. If the emperor was thinking of taking over the country, then he would never find less resistance than right now. And this wasn't simply a greedy land grab. Preventing the Rus from migrating to the Danube was a vital part of the strategic defense of Constantinople. So to leave the Bulgarians to defend it would have been foolish. They had already been beaten twice. Many of them had then cooperated with the Rus, and they were now in a depleted state. From a Byzantine perspective, it was self-evident that they had to retain the river fortresses. And once you've done that, you might as well occupy the whole country in order to protect those strategic points. We should be specific as well. Roman forces were only stationed in the northeast of the Balkans, the area between the Danube and the Hemus Mountains. We aren't sure how far west their control extended. There was plenty of Bulgarian land beyond that, which remained in local hands. We'll talk about this at the end of the century. Finally, we should acknowledge domestic political concerns. As a usurper who'd murdered his uncle, John's legitimacy was threadbare. And clearly, with civil war and regular war breaking out, his reign was far from secure. What better sign of God's favour can you imagine than returning home to announce to the people that not only did I defeat the frightening Rus, but I also ended the Bulgarian menace? In the end, the decision was easy to make.
There are no reports of dissension within eastern Bulgaria, which suggests that their military really was in dire straits. An army of occupation was left behind to directly administer the country. Preslav was renamed as the City of John, or Iannoopolis, while Dristra was rebranded as Theodoropolis, after Saint Theodore, who was close to John's heart, and who, according to the emperor's agents, was seen during the final battle leading Byzantine troops on a charge. This was a massive propaganda effort to see John return as a conquering Christian emperor. And the conquering part is certainly true. The Vasilevs could now brag that he had extended the borders as far as Nicephorus had done in just one campaign. And I suspect that the people of the capital were more impressed by this because they knew the Balkans far better than they did the eastern lands. Naturally, John celebrated a huge triumph upon his return. To drive home his piety, he gave up his place on the horse-drawn chariot for an icon of Mary, which had been taken from Preslav. Following John along the Messi was Boris II in full regalia. In order to mollify the remaining Bulgarian elite, the Vasilevs offered them either a wealthy retirement or posts in the Roman army. As the triumph reached its conclusion, Boris took off his imperial robes and his crown and handed them over to John. Naturally, Zimiskis gave them to the Patriarch to be placed in the Hagia Sophia as an offering to God. The Bulgarian monarchy was, in Roman eyes, at an end. No one could now doubt that the Lord either approved of, or at least had turned a blind eye to Zimiskis' seizure of power. He was the legitimate emperor and would remain unchallenged for the remainder of his reign. To put a bow on this story, I should point out that the northeast Balkans had been lost to the Romans before the Bulgars arrived. The region began to slip from imperial control during the civil war between Phocas and Heraclius in the early 600s. So for the first time in about 360 years, Roman troops returned to the Danube. During Nicephorus's reign, we knew a great deal about domestic affairs and the mood in the capital. With John, we are largely in the dark. We know that the patriarch Polyuctus finally died in 970, and we hear rumours that his successor was involved in some kind of disobedience against the emperor. But otherwise, all seems to have been quiet. Probably John learned from Nicephorus's failures. He maintained the perks of the Senate, kept bread prices low, and prevented soldiers from drinking in the streets. We do know more about his response to events in the East. The last thing that Byzantium wanted was a revival of a united caliphate, and so more campaigning was needed. 
John stayed at home through the rest of 971 and most of 972. But by autumn that year, he headed east to lead troops in person. In order to put pressure on the Fatimids, Simiskis banned the export of weapons and lumber to the Muslims for the time being. He asked the Venetians to respect this request. Gathering his army, he set off from Melitene in late September and headed toward Mesopotamia. His first target was Nisbis, which he'd sacked in the past, and again he slaughtered and took captives. Then he sent word to Abu Taklib, the Hamdanid emir of Mosul and nephew of Saif, demanding an annual tribute, at which he got, and then he marched on Martyropolis, which he failed to capture. Presumably, John was trying to set up similar arrangements to those he'd established at Aleppo in order to prevent the Fatimids from encroaching on those areas. The emperor would spend the next two years at home, setting up the new administration of Bulgaria. Meanwhile, his commanders would press on in the east. When Abu Taklib failed to pay up, the Romans marched on Amida, but they were defeated and their commander had to be ransomed. It wasn't until 975, four years on from his triumph in Bulgaria, that John gathered a full army and marched into Syria. He actually did go east in autumn 974 to Tehran, the new slice of Armenian territory that had been bequeathed to the empire. He met with representatives of the king of central Armenia, Ashot III, who was apparently reassured to hear that the Romans had no more ambitions in his direction, and pledged 10,000 troops for the emperor's forthcoming campaign in the south. With a large force at his back then, John set off in spring 975. His goal was to eject Fatimid garrisons from Syria and demonstrate Roman power to decision-makers in the region. His guides would be Bedouin Arabs, probably as part of the treaty with Aleppo. They would not be asked to fight, but merely to help scout the road for the emperor. Just the sight of the Byzantines was enough to see a few small garrisons abandon their posts as Zemiskis marched down the coast road further than Nicephorus had ever ventured. You can see the places he visited on the map I've posted. The Romans had reached the vicinity of Damascus, the former Umayyad capital, when they finally met some resistance. These were not actually Fatimid troops, they were mercenaries and local levies raised by Abu Mansur al-Ptikin. Al-Ptikin was a Turkish general who, like Saif ad-Dawla before him, had lost out in the struggles for control of Baghdad and had decided to carve out a base for himself in Syria. Having brushed his troops aside, the Romans occupied the city of Baalbek by the end of May. They then pushed on towards Damascus itself. The city was ravaged by civil war between the pro- and anti-Alptikin forces and was not in a strong position to resist. John engaged in diplomacy. Alptikin was clearly not going to side with the Fatimids, and so Zimiskis accepted tribute and a pledge of loyalty from him and moved on.
The Romans headed west to the coast and besieged Beritus. They were particularly concerned to keep Egyptian ships away from their territory. So they negotiated the surrender of the Fatimid garrison and tried to establish friendly relations with the Arab leaders of the city. The neighbouring town of Sidon submitted soon afterwards. John now headed north towards home. He captured the city of Byblos when it refused to surrender, but similar attempts to take Tripoli failed. As Nicephorus had found, it was just too well fortified, and so reaching for the standard playbook, the Romans ravaged the suburbs, cutting down all the fruit trees they could find and carting them back to Byzantium. On the way to Antioch, John's men climbed the local mountains, ejecting any remaining Arab garrisons in the hills. At the same time, an ambassador was sent to Cairo, presumably to try and arrange a peace treaty based on the newly established balance of power. Essentially, the Fatimids were left to control Palestine, while the Romans dominated Syria. The two sides met in the old province of Phoenicia, modern Lebanon. It's easy to forget that just a few decades ago, a campaign of this scope would have been unthinkable. And yet, again, the Romans had successfully marched through enemy territory, largely unopposed. The reputation they'd earned in the conquest of Cilicia opened doors for them. We should remember, though, that resistance to Fatimid domination aided their cause, and essentially the political division of the region was set to continue as John established it here. More on that during the end of the century. In the short term, John's men had also taken plenty of booty and slaves to keep them happy and more relics had been found to transport back to Constantinople for propaganda purposes. Like Nicephorus before him, John had proven that Rome stood above its Saracen enemies and no one was likely to challenge their superiority any time soon. On his way home, though, John fell ill. By the time he reached the Bosphorus, he was having trouble breathing, and he died in early January 976. He was 51 years old and had ruled the empire for six very successful years. The story we're told is that as the emperor pushed on from Antioch toward home, he discovered that many of the estates he was traversing now belonged to Basil Le Capinos, the greedy eunuch had clearly been using his influence to grow wealthy beyond reason. John, suitably disgusted, made plans to get rid of him. So Lecapinos poisoned him, clearing the way for the eunuch to dominate the new emperor, the inexperienced Macedonian prince, Basil. This story, though, is reported only after the eunuch's much later fall from grace and so can relatively safely be discarded. Most likely, Zimiskis picked up an infection on campaign or aggravated some unknown condition. Death at 51 from a sudden sickness was not an unusual event.
There is plenty we don't know about John's reign. In fact, other than the two major military campaigns, we know very little. As I said, we assume he stayed home in 973 and 4 in order to organize the administration of Bulgaria. But he may also have had an eye on easing tensions between the military and civilian interests. By staying at home, he kept expenses down and kept the people happy. Uh, But then, by leading two very profitable campaigns, he managed to mollify the soldiers. It's all just speculation, though. John may have just been responding to events more than applying some kind of grand strategy. He doesn't give off the vibe of having a guiding ideology, as Nicephorus seemed to. It's also worth noting that John was the first emperor to rule during complete peace in Anatolia. There was no danger of raids on imperial territory from that direction for the first time in 350 years. Zimiskis could thus afford to stay at home and keep his soldiers idle. For the central empire, a well-deserved period of rest was setting in. With all that we don't know, it's hard to fully judge John as an emperor. One could argue that he was a better Vasilevs than Nicephorus. He was equally successful militarily while maintaining the peace at home, and in theory at least, dying from natural causes. There is something strange about the trajectories of the two men's careers. Nicephorus rose to power through relentless competence, but somehow provoked his own death whereas John was always courting danger, and yet emerges with a flawless record in charge. I suppose in the end, though, we'll never know how Nicephorus's reign would have turned out, because John murdered him, and that act forever stains his otherwise unblemished record. The two men have plenty in common, of course, and their reigns, though different, do seem to form part of a distinct period in Byzantine history, the era of the conquest army. Once Nicephorus had transformed his soldiers into a destructive force, they proved irresistible. From the Danube to Crete, and from Cilicia all the way to Damascus, no one could stand up to the organized brutality of the heavily armoured Romans. Both emperors had successfully maintained this machine and eliminated the empire's nearest neighbours. This caused a great upheaval in the outlook for the empire, which we now need to understand better. As most of you know, the new emperor, young Basil, will rule until 1025. This seemed far too long to wait for a series of of end-of-the-century episodes, and so we will break off now for a short pause. This will not be a full tour, but we need to take stock of the huge changes that have taken place since 912. How were the new territories administered? What's been going on in the Caliphate and Balkans? More magnate discussion, answering your questions, and looking at our sources. 
I will need to take a couple of weeks off, but once I'm back, the episodes should all come in a row. Also, for anyone who skipped it, there is a listener survey for you to fill in. Check the website. If I can get 500 responses, then you will all get a free episode of the Byzantine Story series discussing Roman medicine. I should also take a moment to say thank you to all of you who've bought the sale episodes or taken out a subscription. I know you early adopters will see your subs coming up for renewal at the end of July. You've completely changed my life with your generosity. And for now, the podcast looks pretty secure heading on into the 11th century. Thank you all so much, and I'll be back soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.